Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, historian of pop culture Travis Elborough talks about a book, London Bridge in America, and a film, How We Used to Live. Travis Elborough has been a freelance writer, author, and cultural commentator for more than a decade now. His books include The Bus We Love, The History of the Rootmaster Bus, The Long Player Goodbye, A Hymn to Vinyl Records, and Wish You Were Here, A Survey of the British Beside the Seaside. His latest book is London Bridge in America, The Tall Story of a Transatlantic Crossing. He's also recently been the co-writer with Bob Stanley of How We Used to Live, a BFI archive film directed by Paul Kelly, which premiered at the 2013 London Film Festival. And we're going to talk about both the the latest book and the film today. So, Travis, first of all, thank you very much for talking to me today. Pleasure. My copy of London Bridge in America has a, a quote from The Guardian, one of Britain's finest pop cultural historians, it says... And I've read the review that that came from, and he sort of means it as a bit of a backhanded compliment, really. <laughs> what do you think you do? Um, the backhanded compliment, I think, comes from the idea that that accolade isn't really worth <laughs> having. It's like the world's a... tallest dwarf. Yes, exactly. I don't really know. I mean, I, I suppose roughly what I do is, is in the field of cultural history. I'm often interested in how things are described in novels and films mm-hmm. and imagery as much as the historical fact. So often I'll use digressions about film or music um, in order to talk about a historical thing and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I think that's... I mean, I tend to refer to them as wayward social histories, but yeah. that's, that's probably a bit pretentious, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're not... You know, they're serious, but they're also hopefully entertaining and conversational. I mean, I think, like most people writing books, you want to write a book for some sort of imaginary audience that you believe is almost like yourself. I mean, it began with my first book, which is a book about the London Routemaster bus, as mm-hmm. you mentioned. And I think at that time, when I was doing research into that, all the books I were reading about Routemaster buses were written mm-hmm. by enthusiasts, for enthusiasts. It was a very closed, kind yeah. of small world. And it didn't seem to describe this vehicle which uh, which I was you know experiencing in, in London both as a kind of a, a living part of the city as a piece of transport but also how much it appeared in you know in films and on record sleeves and on postcards mm-hmm. so that was the starting point in a way for a way of tackling those kind of topics I guess why do you think that sort of thing is worthy of our attention you know why should something that you would expect to be of interest to enthusiasts be sort of palatable to a wider audience I think in that case it was more that lots of people seem to like this thing but the only thing written about 
about seem to be I mean that particular book I think I described it along the lines of like having a wedding photographer mm-hmm. who turned up at the wedding and obsessively took photographs of the cake yeah. and wasn't interested in any of the other stuff that was my it was more I suppose the, the humanity of it in a way that you know that how we interact with it was what was seemed missing it was already well to talk about the engine numbers and you know the types of crankshafts and, mm. and god knows what else but it somehow seemed to miss the more humdrum but also magical element of, uh, of something within the city and I suppose that's similar or at least connected to the idea of you know London Bridge mm. this chunk of, of granite which in London performs a, a fairly you know mundane task but a, but a vital one of you know conveying people across from one side of the river to mm-hmm. the other then gets taken up and sold to the states and where it becomes almost like an ornament and an amusement element mm-hmm. it's the starter yeast of a, of a whole new leisure complex and i think that's a, an interesting thing that's happened in, in recent history anyway that we're quite used to the idea of power stations suddenly being turned into mm-hmm. museums or art galleries and you know chocolate factories becoming theaters uh, sort of a post-industrial use of mm-hmm. those buildings where they find a, a kind of new life where did you first come across this story then? When did you first realise that you wanted to tell this story of London Bridge? The first time I heard this story, as far as it, the story that you know, London Bridge had been sold to the States, was, was as, a, as a small child. It, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I grew up on the South Coast. And I have very vivid rem- memories of a particular teacher mm-hmm. uh, called Mrs Sargent, who would always kind of whip her acoustic guitar yeah. out and strum us some songs at any opportunity, seemingly. And this in the kind of you know, learn-by-play mm-hmm. middle 70s. But anyway, teaching us you know, the London Bridge is falling down rhyme and then pausing and saying but the real London Bridge is in America mm-hmm. and at that time she might as well have said you know the moon uh, it seems so sort of exotic and other you know America you know I'd seen London on you know on motorway signs but I, you know America was only kind of beamed into us by a television and you know who had landed on the moon but the Americans mm-hmm. and most of the aliens you met with a couple of notable exceptions on TV uh, you know had American accents mm-hmm. so, so that, that's when I first ever heard of, uh, heard of the story I was reacquainted it again actually with the bus book because there was also a story that beneath this London Bridge in, in, you know, in Arizona there was supposedly a, a Routemaster bus serving as like an ice cream parlour at the foot of it and I, I went on a, a radio show mm-hmm. for Five Live which went out at an incredibly early hour of the morning and they rang up Lake Havasu City uh, where London Bridge is and, and, and we all had a chat about, about their bus and they said oh, you, know, you should come over and see it so rather an elongated way that eventually <laughs> that's what I did do I mean the book is a, a book is a lot about the history of London Bridge you know, it's 2,000 years of London Bridge there's a lot of mm-hmm. London Bridge in, in London <laughs> to be honest and, you know, and only really about half of it is about London Bridge in, in America but I mean, a period I'm quite fascinated with is the post-war mm-hmm. era and something about that whole swinging London phenomena which exemplifies Britain both as a modern country but also to a certain extent trading on lots of arcane bits mm-hmm. of history, lots of... There's never never more kind of beef-eaters in, in a kind of swinging London film or red buses kind of whizzing past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's um, you know, sort of David Mailer, the art historian, wrote a fantastic book about the 60s art scene in London, describes this whole thing of, you know, London speeding up and becoming a much more kinetic city mm-hmm. uh, and part of that is also you know these blurry buses so interested in that idea of london at a point of change 
and there's something about the sale of this bridge. The bridge is, is dumped, effectively, mm-hmm. because it's deemed no longer capable of coping with the increased traffic mm-hmm. on the roads. And this is the era when um, you know, the Eastern Arch is demolished uh, and, you, and the Westway is about to be constructed. And there are plans to construct what was called you know, sort of the motorway grid system around mm-hmm. the London, which would have meant bulldozing half of Greenwich and uh, you know, putting a three-lane motorway through Covent Garden. And there's this odd contradiction in the way that the Americans buy for their new city this chunk of old granite, which is deemed you know, surplus of a requirement and out of date in, in London. So it's being you know, changed from a working bridge into almost a, a plaything. Although it does work as a bridge, but... There's also... Well, there's just layers and layers of stories there because, you know, you've just described your... And I don't want to have a go at your poor teacher, but, you know, her describing singing London bridges falling down and then saying, oh, well, actually, London Bridge is in America. Well, of course, London Bridge is there over the Thames now. There yeah, is a London yeah, Bridge. Yeah. And the bridge that she was talking about being in America is not the one that, presumably, the, the nursery rhyme London Bridge is no, exactly, down yeah, yeah, been yeah, written yeah, about. Yeah. So, there's, so there's that. But also... Okay, we have to get in that you know the fact that everybody knows everybody that knows this story vaguely in the back mm. of their mind about London Bridge being sold to America will know this story that of course they bought the wrong bridge. Yeah, yeah, the great story in effect. I mean, the, the you, you allude to that whole thing about the story of the bridge. I mean, the person who proposed selling it was um, a former city journalist, press officer and City of London politician, a guy called Ivan Luckin, mm-hmm. who'd been at school with uh, Dennis Thatcher. And he is the guy who comes up with the, this idea of, of selling the bridge. And what he sells to the Americans, and he creates a really nice little pamphlet to promote this, is not the selling of bits of John Rene's 1831 bridge, half of the stone of which actually was replaced in the early 19th century, anyway, the early 20th century. He sells it as, you know, 2,000 years of history, you know, mm-hmm. takes it right back to the, to the Romans. So, that, you know, the selling itself comes with a whole load of baloney, for want mm-hmm. of a, you know, a better word. It comes with this mythology about the bridge. And, yes, yeah, you say that, then the most famous thing, uh, certainly the thing I was very aware of and, and part of the interest and what piqued my interest in trying to do the book was, you know, was the famous story that the Americans had bought the wrong bridge and what they really wanted was the more decorative, shall we say, tower bridge. And, of course, there's no truth in that story whatsoever. Well, that would spoil the, the book for the reason. There is... You can find some doubt in that story. That, you know, there's a little bit of, of give. I argue in the book... Um, and I think I've you know, unearthed enough information that it's extremely unlikely, shall we say, that they bought the wrong bridge. But also the, the people that bought the bridge were extraordinary characters. I mean, Luckin mm-hmm. himself, you know, the, the city politician was an extraordinary character, larger-than-life character anyway. But the people who he sold it to also, which was Robert Paxton McCulloch, who is a chainsaw magnate, an oil baron, and a kind of property developer. Going back to the chainsaw, he effectively invents the first, you know, one-person-operated chainsaw. And his, his partner in crime is a man called Cornelius Vandervelt Wood Jr., who is a championship laureate twirler. He's a championship chili chef. And he also had a hand in the creation of Port Disney's Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's actually a theme park designer when McCulloch and Wood meet one another. And they've got this new town, effectively, that they're, they're building out in the Arizona desert, uh, a place called Lake Havasu City. There is no Lake Havasu 
until 1948, mm -hmm. when the Parker Dam uh, creates it. I mean, anyone's familiar with, uh, you know, Chinatown, that film was a, a great story about the kind of you know, water being diverted towards Los Angeles. That, it's that Parker Dam, you know, that, that part of the American history which creates the lake for Lake Havasu. And then Lake Havasu City is, you know, is established by uh, McCulloch and Wood in, you know, 1962-63. So it's a brand new place. And they have an idea to create the settlement which will be home to one of McCulloch's factories building outboard motors and, and testing outboard motors. And it will have, you know, fishing and hunting and leisure pursuits as well. And that's the idea. And this is the era when, you know, Las Vegas, for instance, is, is incredibly popular and, you know, and it seems to represent the future. You have the suburban flight as well from inner cities, you know. And there's this whole strand of the people I interviewed over there, some of the earlier settlers there, describe themselves as pioneers. They thought of themselves as going to this, beginning this new thing. But the city's doing okay, but Wood essentially hears that London Bridge is for sale uh, and decides they should buy it and make it the centrepiece of their new resort. We'll come back to that story a bit later on, but let's just go back to the to the bridge itself, or at least the bridges. I want to talk about the historical mm. London yeah. bridges. There's been a bridge on that, roughly, because it's, it's never quite on the same spot. No, it moves around roughly a little, on that, roughly on, on the same spot. spot since yeah. Roman times. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. I mean, this, the first stone bridge is, is created by a priest bridge builder, guy called Peter de Colchurch, Peter, Peter of Colchurch. It was actually the church that um, Thomas Beckett attended as a boy. There's quite a tradition, actually, within the medieval period post the Crusades, this, you know, this brother of the bridge, mm -hmm. to create bridges as acts of devotion. And there's a, some feeling that this idea of creating these arches over, over the waters comes partly from Islamic architecture um, mm -hmm. uh, after the Crusades. But in any case, de Colchurch is the man who rustles up enough money, persuades um, you know, various people to donate cash. And, there's a, uh, and the upkeep of the bridge, you know, people are encouraged to, to donate for God and, and the bridge. It's created in around... I mean, it takes over 30 years, and it's, you know, it's created in the, in, the, in the 12th century. De Colchester himself actually dies before it's finished and is buried in a little chapel, which is created on the bridge itself. And the chapel itself was also... Because it's on London Bridge, you know, it's the main route in and out of, of the city of London, but it's also the main pilgrimage route mm -hmm. to go out to Canterbury. And really, that, you know, it remains the sole river crossing until the early 18th century, um, when the old Putney slash Fulham Bridge is, is created. And it's really, you know, you already have London Bridge or the boat, you know, the watermen, the sort of black cabs of their, of their day. And that's the only means across the Thames. So it becomes this huge funnel. Mm -hmm. And it's this, it's an irregular bridge of, of 19 cut waters and a a drawbridge. Mm -hmm. um, it's an inhabited bridge. You know, it has these, you know, these houses and shops overhanging it. Um, you know, it looks like you know a spiky backed dragon. You know, uh, protecting its lair. Um, and it's the bridge that the revolting peasants from Essex you know, and Kent storm. Um, and it's also the bridge where various heads are stuck on sticks, including that actually of, of Thomas More. And the interesting thing about More is that you know More writes the book Utopia, and where does he set uh, his utopia? It's in the newfound land. I, it's, mm -hmm. it's it's America. So this seems quite you know prophetic in an odd <laughs> sense that um, his head should end up there, and then a later incarnation of London Bridge should end up in, in America. You mentioned this idea of the bridge building being almost a, a, a sort of devotional thing. And it's a... Well, first of all, it's difficult to envisage from this 
time period when the river's embanked that this was the whole riverscape was different you know it was literally a mud banks on either mm. side and other rivers would have been coming in you know lots of the other covered over rivers would have been coming in but the point I was trying to get to was this idea that building a bridge over the Thames well actually you know right up until modern days it doesn't really necessarily get any easier it's a difficult thing to do it's it, a lot of people lose their very lives very much yeah I mean people do lose their lives during the creation of it I mean one of the things is when the Americans uh, recreate London Bridge in, in the States they build it over dry land it would mm-hmm. be in the desert which is a lot easier because of course if you're erecting a bridge in particularly at that point in the Thames mm-hmm. you know with the, the fierce current it's hard work um, and many people were killed in the creation of, of the first London Bridge and indeed uh, the creation of John Rennie's Bridge in the late 1820s which was opened in 1831. So why was the original the Ponte Vecchio style mm. bridge replaced? Let's talk about John Rennie and the bridge that yeah. he builds. It is the one that eventually goes to America. Why was that bridge replaced? I mean it was replaced really because you know true to the nursery running it was it was falling down. <laughs> It'd been falling down for centuries. I mean the city of London were chiselers even in those days, and uh, there's a, a great historian, um, his name is Gates, but describes, you know, the narrative of London Bridge is a narrative of repairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like the city of London, full stop. London is, you know, always patched and put together. It's never entirely redone, or certainly, certainly opportunities to redo it have, have never been, mm-hmm. have been, have never really been been seized. And that was really the case. I mean, what effectively does for, uh, you know, De Colchurch's old stone London Bridge is the great last frost fair of the winter of 1813, 18, 1814. I mean, the bridge has already been, the houses in a sense on the bridge have been removed. They're removed in about the uh, 1850s, I think. And, you know, it's been tarted up, largely in part because, uh, you know, Waterloo Bridge, the old Waterloo Bridge has been created uh, alongside it. And, uh, you know, it's a flurry of Southwark Bridge, Blackfriars mm-hmm. and stuff. So, the old bridge is looking a bit tatty by comparison with these new bridges. So, you know, it has a bit of a facelift to begin with. But then the Great Frost Fair of 1813, 1814 just does too much damage to the stone. And eventually they have to agree to replace it. I mean, there had been an earlier competition to try and design a new bridge for London. Um, one of the people that enters that is one of the, the great uh, Scottish engineers, Thomas Telford. And he proposes the creation of uh, an iron bridge, which unfortunately is, is turned out and isn't built. And there's a rival plan as well. Well, which is almost like Tower Bridge, but in uh, horizontal with two crossings, almost like with drawbridges on them. There's lots of lots of schemes over the centuries. Various people have plans to create a new London Bridge, but it's only really after that frost fair that finally they agree that they have to replace it. And the design eventually chosen. It's not actually the original winner of the competition. And John Rennie himself was dead by <laughs> by this time as well. And there is some feeling that probably most of it was designed by one of his sons, uh, George Rennie, and it was certainly completed by his other son, mm-hmm. Sir John Rennie. He is an engineer who's done lots of surveying on the river in preparation for the competition and then sort of submits his own his own design. And it's a, you know, it's a neoclassical, it's a rather elegant bridge. I mean, if you go to Hyde Park and have a look at the, the bridge over the Serpentine, which was designed by his son, George Rennie, that's, it's quite similar in style. But when it's created, you know, it weighs over 140 tonnes of granite. It's the heaviest thing that's ever been built uh, in London. It's a really monumental creation. Um, and it's opened by William IV in, in, with great pomp 
1831. But the truth of the matter is, it was effectively almost immediately out of date the moment it opened. I mean, within five years of it opening, you get the opening of London Bridge Station to the south, Mm -hmm. bringing a whole new swathe of of commuters into London. Uh, You have steamboats on the river, the population of London's just going haywire. And in, in a way, the creation of Tower Bridge a bit later, you know, finished in the 1890s, is almost taunting the fact that London Bridge can't really cope with the extra levels of traffic. It also sinks slightly and also within 20 years they're arguing about having to widen the bridge because it can't cope with the amount of traffic and in the end by the early sort of Edwardian period they they have to widen the bridge So so it's almost immediately out of date. But it does as you mentioned it takes until the 1960s before they finally decide that it's no longer fit for purpose and needs to be replaced then this guy that you've already mentioned, Ivan Luckin, he's at the London Corporation and is basically a PR guy, comes up with this idea, but it meets quite a lot of resistance at first. Yes, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, on the, um, the British House Estates Committee, it's treated with a great deal of incredulity, this idea, you know, I think the, the line is something like someone says, you know, who do you think will, you know, will buy a heap of old stones? And also, you know, how much do you think you will get? And, and Luckin comes back with a slightly Dr. Evil figure of, you know, uh, you know, one million pounds. And he does achieve that in the end. But you know, there's a fair degree of scepticism about anyone buying it. And it, but actually, looking into the archive stuff, and it's not entirely certain that there were that many people that took an interest in buying it or that many other other bidders mm-hmm. um there's a couple of others that, that i that i know of but wooden and paxton mcculloch are the, are the two that come up trumps in the end i'm rachel cook you're listening to resonance fm and this is little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture so let's talk about the the process of basically taking it down, shipping it over, reconstructing it. How did it work? Well, there was a seventeen year old apprentice called Alan who would whose job it was initially to number bits of the stone and put them up. The reality is that, that McCulloch and Wood didn't buy all of London Bridge. They effectively bought the outer cladding of it. This is also part of the reason why it's extremely unlikely they bought the wrong bridge because yeah. you had to effectively create an undercarriage, like a skeleton mm-hmm. bridge, which the cladding was then attached to. We've got to know what you're doing with it, really. And it's effectively, you know, blocks of it are taken apart. Uh, it's shipped down to Tilbury and then taken out to Long Beach, California, and then driven the rest of the way mm-hmm. to Arizona. I mean, one of the telling things about this process is that McCulloch is, initially, is unhappy with the with the speed with which this is all happening. And so he employs a, a Swedish firm who are at the forefront of, of a new phenomenon, which is containerization. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the period when London docks are being taken down. And, and in a way... Rennie's bridge, and Rennie himself was responsible for a couple of, uh, of London's docks as well, is the, the point where London, when Rennie's bridge is created, it's when London becomes this huge imperial mercantile power. And, you know, the, the Thames is, you know, is, you know, one of the liveliest ports and the, mm-hmm. port, you know, the, uh, the port of London is one of the busiest in the globe. And then by the time it goes and it's being sold, those docks, which were so vital to that trade, are being closed down. So this seems something rather poignant and, and, mm-hmm. and a little sad about that trajectory. You've talked about the guy that buys it, Robert McCulloch. What happens to him later on? He has a sort of a not particularly noble ending. He doesn't. It? Yeah, he he dies in very mysterious circumstances. I mean, they create you know, they create their cavity, they create you know the bridge arrives, they 
open it and the rest of it. And the city's doing quite well by that point. Certainly, certainly it does the trick in a way. You know, it attracts the attention of the world's media and and like obviously from looking like it might not survive, then it does. But he's also designed. He's also got his his finger in lots of other pies, and also also is creating other new town complexes in other areas of the states, and. Some of these seemingly, or certainly his, some of his agents, were involved in some possibly sharp practice. And he comes under an investigation by the federal government for some of this. And his son comes under investigation by the federal government for this. And he dies of a barbiturate and alcohol overdose in slightly murky circumstances. And, and that's, that's really it. The, the, the conundrum of quite... I mean, there are rumours of, of mafia money, mafia you know, wanting to... Having, having, it's, very, it's not that far from, from Las Vegas, but you know, it, you know, it's intruding on their on their terrain in a way and then later on cv wood and you know mcculloch's son are effectively kind of ousted from the company by one of the earliest venture capitalists and in a way i mean one of the one of the nice things or interesting things about mcculloch and wood is in a way that they're they're almost adventure capitalists Mm -hmm. you know what they're doing doesn't seem to you know by contemporary models doesn't make a lot of business sense but there's a certainly a a, a rather flamboyant uh almost kind of Mm gung-ho approach to how they you know let's you know let's create a new town out there you know um you know i've invented a one-person chainsaw i know the next thing everyone in america want will be you know a a gyro plane in their garage you know which is this personal helicopter for everyone you know all of these kind of madcap schemes in a way which mcculloch would create and invent and, and engender come from a, a, a very different form of uh, American entrepreneurialism to the one that will that will replace them. It's a lot more colourful. I think that's you know why they're, they're so appealing. I mean, and you know when I met some of the pioneers in, in Lake Havasu, lots of had you know a great deal of affection and love for for what. Uh, McCulloch had set him in, in place and, and spoke warmly about things he'd done, including on one occasion, you know, shipping some uh, or flying some eggs out for uh, you know for Easter for the for the children because the store didn't have some. But you know that said, you know there were a journalist who I interviewed. You know, there, there were enormous levels of flaws in in, in how Lake Havasu was uh, was created, and, and one of the fascinating things actually was that one of the original pioneers, a woman, she and her husband were set up a real estate office there very early on, and her take on it was really to say that it was an incredibly male place you know they they thought about you know hunting and fishing and all of these right you know they put a bowling alley in they'd done all these things but there was not a huge amount for the women to do and she said she's maintained that there you know there are it was quite harsh to begin with as well you know it is right in the, you know in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the desert well, it's off, you know, off route 66 but it's a harsh terrain and you know there were quite a few divorces during the, the kind of early years because people just couldn't really cope with what was you know, this, where they place themselves. And what's it like now? I mean, how does the bridge fit into the infrastructure of the city? What does it look like? I mean, oddly, the bridge itself actually looks rather nice. I have to say, it looks, you know, it looks rather elegant. Mm. Um, I mean, it's a neoclassical bridge, and it's over this rather beautiful expanse of, you know, a greeny blue water. It's very bright and, you know, very sunny. And, you know, as it turns to dusk, it does actually look rather Italian. Mm-hmm. That said, one of the other things that was created by the side of the bridge was a, an English village, part of which actually originally was given as a gift to the City of London. So there was a, a piece of, of Lake Havasu belonged to the to the City of London, what locals referred to as, and they were originally given as an, an acre of dirt. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but they created this, this English village, which had you know, a pub, a kind of Trafalgar Square f- fountain with you know, fun-sized Landseer lions, which I were told was made in Mexico. Um, a gate, this old gate for, uh, some, from some village in Gloucestershire by all accounts 
um, a telephone box, all, all of that stuff, um, you know, tudory houses and shops. All of that was looking, when I went, in, in a very poor state. It had gone bankrupt and, um, and was all closed up and is about to be replaced with luxury riverside condos. So that mm-hmm. part of Lake Havasu's history, in a way, the beginning part of it, it is about to be removed, you know, um, eradicated in a way. And that seems a little sad, but, uh, but it clearly wasn't, it isn't working for America. I mean, one of the fascinating things is I interviewed one of the head of tourism there and asked, you know, what's the most popular thing to visit there? And it's the lake, you know, mm-hmm. the lake itself is a chief attraction because people go boating, you know, speed boating, they go, uh, you know, waterboarding, they, you know, they, they go fishing, all of that stuff. Uh, the bridge itself is, uh, is fairly low down in the, you know, in, in the attractions. But the bridge is still there, you know, it's still, as I said, it, you know, it looks, looks rather elegant. In a weird way, freed from London, you know, when, I, when you look at old photographs of it, and this is the bridge that T.S. Eliot wrote about mm-hmm. in the Wasteland, and interestingly, both T.S. Eliot and McCulloch originally come from St. Louis, which is another kind of river city. But freed from, you know, having to do a job being, you know, something that commuters tramp over, it takes on a, a different aspect and actually looks, looks, as I said, you know, quite attractive in a way that in London, you know, covered in smoke. And, and the interesting thing about the, the bridge as well is, you know, there's still coal dust and graffiti on it from when it when it was shipped over extant stuff even some as a, an american gi scratched mm-hmm. his kind of name and date on a particular piece of of stonework the bridge over there is also hollow as it was for cladding put on this on this framework and a man called jan cassis who was originally from holland but uh, retired to America and then ended up in, in Lake Havasu City. Is, is gave myself and two guys from the leading Harley Davidson magazine of, of America called American Iron, with the three people doing the tour on the particular day I went. Uh, and he told us it was hollow and that bats live inside it, and it also has lots of utilities. I mean, as I said, it was originally erected on dry land, so they actually you know, dynamited a, a part of the lake to create mm-hmm. this. Bridgewater Canal to flood water through and underneath the bridge. Just to finish off on the book, then this is a bridge that you know was built in a period of time when the Thames was the sort of the gateway to a massive, powerful empire. This bridge is sold to America in the post-war period, where that's all been dismantled mainly by America. What does this story tell us about that transfer of power from London over to the New World? It's almost exemplified by that. I mean, I mean, one of the things I write about in the book as well is, is how, how much of the whole swinging London phenomena itself is aerated by American money and American, mm-hmm. American magazine interest. I mean, the famous Time magazine issue. But prior to that, it's actually an American journalist called John Crosby writing for The Telegraph who, who coined the, the whole swinging London phrase. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, there are two things about it. One is that America feels confident enough about itself to entertain the idea that England is amusing you know and that the swinging london phenomenon is worthy of of interest want a, a better better word but at the same time england itself feels, feels quite good about the idea of itself becoming a, a more modern country with some of the trappings of, mm-hmm. of tradition one of the arguments that i make in the book about why the story of the sale of london bridge seems to come you know the idea that the americans bought the wrong bridge seems to come into being round about by the early 70s mm-hmm. by which point you know you move from you know the world world cup victory of 1966 to accusations of, of of shoplifting and defeat in mexico 19 
1970 and then you're into kind of the three-day week mm-hmm. and a certain theory of endism in a way enters the uh, the british psyche so the story of getting one over on those you know those damn yanks seems to come to life shall we say around about that period so i think that's certainly a strand of, of the story i suppose one of the things i was also thinking about in studying that period and studying this phenomenon now is what famously you know obama uh, removed there was a bust of churchill i think how would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In, in the Oval Office, and which he had removed. I mean, I was in Lake Havasu, actually someone apologised on my behalf for, <laughs> for Obama doing this. So it's, you know, again, what, where is that transatlantic relationship at, at this point in time? But also, I suppose, the more, the more extraordinary phenomena, if we consider, you know, that we're about to invite the, you know, the Chinese to help build our, you know, our nuclear power stations and everything else, is, is whether the balance of power has gone somewhere else again now. There's an estimation of, you know, something like a million more Chinese tourists will come to London and whether they'll, in a way, replace the, you know, the, the big boom in the post-war period was, you know, in Europe particularly, was American tourists and, you know, to maybe to a bit later on Japanese tourists. But some of that was because obviously people had historical ancestral connections to Europe. Some of it was because, they, you know, they'd fought in the war um, and wanted to return to places they'd helped liberate. And some of it was just that they had more money and access to cheap air flights. So Tom Wolfe argued, you know, that... The idea of the image of the, the vulgar American tourist really comes about because, you know, that suddenly a swathe of the American population who've never had money before have money and mm-hmm. can go out and, and travel and leave America in the way that they, they'd never previously done. And interestingly, part of that 
the influx of money into China and Chinese tourists out, one of the things that's led to is this bizarre recreation of entire towns in China that are replicas of European towns. And things. Yep, definitely. I mean, oh yeah. So there'll be a new a new London Bridge being shipped. I mean, it's, it's just an element about why would you why would you have the original? When, you know, when you can just build a, a replica mm-hmm. anyway. And that I mean, you know, discussions about you know building a recreating Crystal Palace or reassembling mm-hmm. the Euston Arch. So I think we've in in an odd respect. I th- I think I said it right at the beginning, but this sale, which in in the 1960s looks you know looks very wacky to lots of people, you know, Luckin himself, the, the man who proposes selling it, reaches lots of opposition. It's often mocked in papers, uh, you know, in, in articles from from the period. But it's actually at the forefront, in a way, of something we're very familiar with, which is you know finding new uses for old industrial buildings mm-hmm. when they're when they're no longer doing that. You know, and as I said before, that you know power stations can become art galleries or that chocolate factories can become theatres is now fairly standard mm-hmm. and, and not questioned and it's an extreme example but i think the idea of taking a functioning bridge and moving it across to to the states where it becomes a centerpiece of a, a resort town it seems like a kind of prescient example of, of that phenomenon <laughs> listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Travis Elbra. We've been talking about his book London Bridge in America and we're going to leave London Bridge behind now. It doesn't leave us behind because it does appear very briefly in the in the film that we're going to talk about now which is How We Used to Live. Um, so Travis I'll get you to explain what How We Used to Live hmm. is. How would you describe it? It's, it's an impressionistic portrait of post-war London constructed using all-colour BFI archive footage. Um, It was directed by Paul Kelly, who's a filmmaker who's... This is his fourth film in collaboration uh, with members of the band St Etienne. Uh, It's actually their fourth film about London. And uh, it has music by Pete Wiggs of St Etienne and also Sarah Cracknell of St Etienne. And Bob Stanley of St Etienne and myself co-wrote the script. How How did you get involved? Well, the idea for the film was Paul's. Paul had seen um, Terence Davies's film of Time in the City, which I don't know if people are familiar with, but it's a personal essay film about Liverpool mm-hmm. using mainly archive footage, some new film stuff as well, but, but created using archive. I mean, it's a very personal film, you know, almost like a memoir film about growing up in Liverpool and what Liverpool means to, means to him now. And it's a really lovely and rather wonderful film. Paul had seen it, and it just... It triggered a thought in his mind. This is about five years ago, it should be said, about doing a similar thing about London. And the initial plan was to do, to have a much kind of longer film, longer timescale anyway, you know, sort of ranging over over the century of, of London. And initially I was brought on as much as uh, a researcher come historian, the kind of history man, as it were, to dig up interesting stuff about the city mm-hmm. that we could then weave into the story along with the archive footage. For various reasons, the film took different turns um, in, over the course of time when we were working on it. A few other archive films also appeared in the interim. And so we 
went back and, and, and rejigged our idea and decided to make it, well, Paul, in effect, decided to make it all colour and therefore it'd be a portrait of post-war London. So, I mean, the footage runs from about 1950 to about 1980. Some of that was to do with the nature of the footage, that after about 1980, people start using video, so there's a mm-hmm. distinct falling off in, in how it looks, or certainly it looks very different from the film stuff, which was created in the 1950s by the government. And this is the whole thing, a lot, a lot of this film was, was made by the British Transport Commission or Central Office of Information mm-hmm. and so on. So it was a government-funded thing um, to create a portrait of, uh, of Britain and, uh, and of London th- through film. And, I mean, that became actually quite a, an interesting thing in itself because it, it frames the film, because what you, what you have, in a way, is that the film begins at the end of the war with the creation of the welfare state, and then at the end you end up with the spectre of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of Thatcherism and the Falklands War, but also the threat of nuclear war and the unravelling, in a way, of, you know, of the post-war war settlement. So those, that became, in a way, the, the framing point. But I think we all felt, in a way, that London's history, you know, which is fascinating and has been told many times on film and in, in books, it, well, it's not the case that it was too familiar because there's still you know, fascinating bits you can unearth. It was more that we wanted something that wasn't quite linear, that didn't just sort of trundle its way through, through the decades. So Paul began kind of assembling the footage in, often by themes, you know, there'd be mm-hmm. sort of transport themes, there'd be themes about children, there'd be themes about the river and so on. And then Bob and I would uh, get together and you know, we're taking some of those themes and we had themes ourselves that we wanted to cover and, mm-hmm. and talk about and we would write this script. Um, and the script is narrated, it's a narrator script in a way, um, you know, rather like you know, Patrick Keeler's London, mm-hmm. which you know, we're all huge fans of. So McShane is, you know, is the voice of the film. And in a way, he's the voice of, of memory. Um, you know, he's often forgetful, he goes to the pub a few times in the <laughs> film, or his voice character does anyway, certainly lots of pub footage. And, and another starting point for the character was actually... Keith Waterhouse's Billy Liar, mm-hmm. but but the premise being, and it was really only a starting premise, was you know what would it have been like if uh, if Billy Liar had stayed on the train and come down to London and was now some fifty years later, you know, reflecting on mm-hmm. uh, on his life in in the city. So that was a, I mean, that was a device. It's not really what the character is, but these were all ways of of getting the the voice of of the character and the narrator. You know, it has. Has you know lots of historical names of nursery rhymes, um, defunct telephone exchanges. I mean, the whole thing about those telephone exchanges that they often had a historical element to mm-hmm. them. So it's another way of creating these little layers within the film. I want to come back to the actual writing process in a moment, but you've already talked about this idea of the you know, the distinct time period, and this is made very explicit at the end of the film, the beginning of the credits. It says. Almost everything you've been watching has been made with funding from the British government between 1950 and 1980. Now, the 1980 point, you know, the the latest stuff in the film is the beginnings of the building of Canary Wharf. And we've talked about, you know, this point of the beginnings of, of Thatcherism really getting underway. But more prosaically, does this type of government-funded filmmaking just stop at that point? I mean, does Pretty much, that done yeah, away yeah. with? Yeah, actually it is, yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is done away with, so it's even more striking in a way that, you know, the demise of the film stock we were using comes about precisely because of, of Thatcherism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those things are wound up and, 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 that, and that ends. I mean, we should be clear that in a way that it's not... I mean, the film hopefully is, um, celebrates, you know, 
both you know the thriving youth culture of, of that time, but also you know the municipal and the civic city. That said, a lot of that footage is of the you know come to London, it's wonderful, rather mm-hmm. unque- you know, unquestioning. So part of the thing that we did, and part of the thing that Paul did particularly, which was to use sounds and narrations from other archive films and move it mm-hmm. over things to create certain impishness. Yes. Um, I mean... The, the Queen driving the Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, you know, well, we spent several weeks, several months in this little room in the BFI's headquarters on Stephen Street viewing old footage. And this, one of the things about colour, using mm-hmm. colour, is that it was expensive, so it tends to be used for the big occasions. So you have endless stuff of, you know, Piccadilly Circus, you know, the Queen, the Trooping of the Colour, etc. So we were trying to subvert that to a certain extent, um, or at least be playful with it mm-hmm. so that that was kind of one of one of the ambitions was to you know, use that material and in as entertaining and as i mean as, as you know the idea is just to provoke thought to think about mm-hmm. what you know what that pomp and circumstance means now as much as it did then you've talked about possibly a sort of overarching the bit the billy liar thing as a framework but also paul collecting different themes parts of uh, of the archive footage but i wanted i wanted to ask whether you know how does the writing of a, a script for an archive film work did you have a sort of overarching story in mind that you would then find the footage for or is it all dictated by the footage that you find i mean it was largely footage driven there are lots of stuff that bob and i wrote which didn't find it into the film because mm-hmm. there just wasn't the footage to go with it i mean bob is a particular has a particular fondness and affection for the great cafe era of the 50s and 60s, you know, these great, you know, formica tabled, mm-hmm. frothy coffee vending uh, dens, which are, you know, such a hive of, of youth activity, you know, skiffle and pop culture and fashion. Mm-hmm. And there is, I think there's one or two films, some which are slightly over-familiar now. They've been shown quite a lot of that stuff, but very little, really. So, you know, we had lots of stuff about that, which didn't make it in there. And actually, even within the material that we had, that we that we did have footage for, Paul also honed the script down kind of even further. We, we spent a, a couple of Sunday afternoons putting the... Once we'd recorded the narration. We recorded Ian. Ian was actually... Ian McShane was in... He'd agreed to do it. was in Hungary. Um, so he had to do it kind of down the line. So we went to the studio in Oxford and, and then had him recorded there. And he was he was amazing, actually, and, and, and did a really fantastic job. And one of the great things about it, or, or the flattering things to Bob and myself's script, is there are... I mean, one of the reasons we chose Ian, in a way, was because he grown up in Blackburn. His father played for Manchester United, and he'd come down to London in, you know, in the early 60s to attend RADA, and in a way had lived through that mm-hmm. period. And there's in a couple of, you know, fantastic uh, 60s and early 70s films... Um, about London, you know, Pleasure Girls, where he plays a, a kind of happening photographer, mm-hmm. and and then later a kind of nicely dark gangster film called Villain, mm-hmm. uh, where he's playing uh, practically kind of Richard Burton's boyfriend, and Richard Burton is a, a kind of composite crane twin. He's of that age, mm-hmm. and he, you know, you could imagine him having gone through that, you know, that that that, that experiences. But um, there are bits in the script. There's a, a line about. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.